What's up, guys? Welcome to the Engage JSU podcast. We are an on-campus ministry here at Jacksonville State University. We want to see God's kingdom come here at JSU as it is in heaven. Verse 1 starts, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So in the Old Testament, God spoke to us. He spoke to his people through prophets. God would reveal a message to his prophet and the prophets were to go before the people of Israel and relay that message. So people like Moses and people like Ezekiel and people like Isaiah are all prophets. And just like we have an official office of the president in the United States, we often refer to jobs like prophet as being in office. That's how theologians refer to the office of prophet. It's an office, and that just means that it's a specific role and it has a specific function. And something that you have to understand about the Old Testament offices, there were many of them, prophet, priest, and king. But something that you have to understand about them is that each one of those offices points to and is fulfilled by Jesus. Every single office points to and is fulfilled by Jesus. So what do we have here? Here in the letter to the Hebrews, we have Jesus fulfilling the office of the prophet. Do you see that? In verse one, it says that in the Old Testament, God spoke to his people using prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So you, you have all the Old Testament prophets on one hand, and then you have Jesus. And while all the Old Testament prophets, they, they were imperfect and they, they revealed God partially, Jesus reveals God fully. Because you see, Jesus doesn't only give us the words of God, but Jesus is the word of God. In John chapter one, the gospel puts it this way. When speaking of Jesus, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus as prophet not only gives us the word of God, but Jesus as prophet comes as the word of God. And this is why Jesus fulfills the office of prophet in a way that no one else could. Not just one who brings the words of God, but one who is the word of God. But let's keep going. Verse two says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So there's a little phrase there that says, Jesus is the heir of all things. But I actually want to skip over that for a second. We'll come back to it. Let's look at this other phrase, through whom he, create, he also created the 
the world. Did you, did you see that? It says that God the Father created the world through Jesus. And we know just from reading in John that Jesus is the word of God in the flesh. And, and we studied a couple of weeks ago how God is majestic creator and that he creates by the word of his power. So God creates the world by speaking it into existence. And Jesus, his son, is the word through whom the world is created. Man, isn't that amazing? Here, the author of Hebrews spells it out so clearly for us. Jesus is the word of God through whom God created the world. And that speaks to something special about Jesus because if you didn't know it before, now it's plain. Jesus wasn't created. Jesus actually participated in creation. So we know when we answer the question, who is Jesus, we know that at least one answer Jesus as the word of God points us to Jesus being God. Because Hebrews shows us that he participated in creation. Many of you who are in college now, maybe you've written your first research paper, maybe you haven't. But one of the things that also always fascinated me when I was in college, I was a history minor. And when I would write papers about historical figures, you know, I would read secondary sources. And basically what that means is I would read a really smart guy who did all the work and compiled all the evidence for me, and I would say, Abraham Lincoln had a beard, and I would cite it, you know? <laughs> but if you're that scholar, and you're the one writing the textbook, you can't rely on somebody else to do that work for you and just cite it. No, it's your job to look at the primary sources. You'd have to read letters from Abraham Lincoln and you'd have to read speeches from Abraham Lincoln. And then you could say Abraham Lincoln had a beard. No, that's not what you would say. And while we take that for granted, there is something sweet about knowing something about someone from their own words. When you study someone and you read their personal words, it reveals who they are in a much deeper way than reading about them from someone else secondhand. And it's similar to what we see Jesus described as here, he, he's the prophet of God who is the word of God and he reveals to us who God is perfectly. He reveals to us who God is perfectly. And so when we think about Jesus as the word of God, when we, when we think about him as the revelation of God, 
One of the things that this means for us in our day-to-day lives as we're living is that we have to value and listen to Christ's voice above all other voices. There are some voices that you really shouldn't listen to at all. But some voices are okay to listen to. But if we think about Jesus Christ as the word of God, we have to filter every voice through his authoritative word. Every piece of advice that you get from a friend, every YouTuber that you watch, we have to be thinking about Christ as the primary revelation of God. Everything must be filtered through the person and work of Christ because he's the word of God and he's the true and better prophet of God. And really that's what makes Christians Christians, right? We, we believe that only Christ has the word of God, not Buddha or Muhammad, but Christ. And so when we read a passage like this, we have to see that we can't equate Christ with anyone else. He stands alone as the word of God. Maybe you sit here and you think, well, I'm not really tempted to follow Buddha, so how does that apply to me? But I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we all find times in our life where our life is more influenced by our favorite Twitter celebrity or our favorite Instagram influencer who looks like they have the perfect life. We don't really treat God like he's revealed himself to us in a perfect person that we can follow. And one of the really basic applications of a text like this, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You see, it was long ago, many times, many ways, it was complicated. The prophets were here one day, they were gone the next. But look, look at what happens when Christ comes. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's enough. Christ is enough. And we have to ask ourselves, do we revere the word of God? Do we read it? Do we apply it? Do we think about it like it's revealed from the very creator of the universe? Do we read our Bibles? That's one application. But I think that another one is that if we see that this Christ who came and died for us is the word of God, that means that we also have to submit our lives to this word that is revealed. Jesus Christ comes and lives a perfect life he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected. He defeats death and he tells us to follow him. And how do we follow him? We have his life and his words for us to follow. But not only do I want us to see that Jesus Christ is the word of God, 
if we keep going, we'll also see that Jesus Christ is the image of God. Verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Last week we looked at who is man, what is man from Genesis and Ephesians, and we learned about how man is created in the image of God. There's something special about man because he's created in the image of God. It's what set, sets man apart. But because of sin, we don't reflect God and represent God like we should. But did you notice what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus? He's the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And so, in our fallen humanity, we don't reflect and represent God as we should, but Jesus does. And not only does Jesus represent and reflect God, he does it perfectly. He's the radiance of his glory in the exact imprint of his nature. Listen, where Adam failed as a representative of humanity, Jesus succeeds. You'll remember last week we read Romans 5.12, and it kind of goes on about how because of Adam, one man's sin led to all being sinners. But I want us to keep going in Romans. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read this one phrase to you. In Romans 5.19, we get to this phrase. For as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So where you have Adam's sin that dishonored God, you have Jesus, who's the radiance of his glory. And so when we put our faith in Christ, Instead of being in Adam with fallen humanity, we're in Christ and we're represented by him, we're redeemed by him, and we're a part of redeemed mankind, the church. But not only, as we'll keep seeing in the book of Hebrews, is Jesus the perfect man who lived a righteous life and represented God perfectly and never sinned, we also see that again, the writer of Hebrews is showing us that Jesus is God. Look at the second half of verse three. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who else could do this but God? God the Father speaks the world into existence. And God the Son upholds the world by the word of his power. How amazing is that? Jesus Christ is the image of God. 
You know, not many of you in this room are married yet, but one thing that'll happen when you do get married, and if you do get married, is that eventually you and your spouse will begin very politely asking each other not to do certain things in public. Maybe not wear certain things in public anymore. If you see me and you think I'm dressed pretty well, you have nobody but my wife to thank. When she met me, I had one pair of jeans that were about 10 years out of date. And she just told me, you can't wear those anymore. We have to buy you some new jeans. I would give you an example of something awkward or embarrassing that I've said in front of her that she tells me not to say, but that would kind of defeat the purpose. <laughs> but why does, this, why does this inevitably happen, right? It's because when I walk into a room, when I say something, when I do something publicly, I represent her. And when she does something, when she says something, when, when she does something publicly, she represents me. When I do something that's knuckleheaded, people think to themselves, man, who is she and why'd she marry that knucklehead, right? When I do something good, they think, man, she married a good man. Yeah, that's good. And although it's different than marriage, right? We see this idea that Jesus represents God. And what's really cool here is that we see that Jesus represents God to us. So if we're looking to see what is God like, we can look to Jesus. But we also see that Jesus, for those who put their faith in him, represent a new humanity to God. I'm gonna say that again. Jesus represents God to humanity, and Jesus represents humanity to God for those who put their faith in him. So what does that have to do with us when we think about Jesus being the image of God? Again, we're going through this series and we're kind of diving deep into the foundations of the theology of our faith. But if we think about it, Jesus being our representative and being the image of God means that if we want to know what is pleasing to God, we don't have to look any further than Jesus. In fact, we must look to Jesus if we want to know what is pleasing to God. And it also means that if we want to be pleasing before God, we have to look to Jesus. We have to be found in Jesus. But also if we think about Jesus as the image of God, we also see that Jesus fulfills the righteous requirements of representing God. So you being born in your sin might think, man, I heard about how humanity has fallen and we don't represent and reflect God. I heard that passage from Ephesians and then Romans. And then I looked at my own life and I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't represent God as I should. But if you're found in Christ, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Because when we have faith in Christ, he as the image of God, the perfect representative, gives us rest because we are given his righteousness. We no longer have to work and strive to be righteous, but rather we work and strive to be like Christ because he loved us with such a great love. And and when we fail to meet his perfect standard, we can just rest because all of his righteousness is credited to us. And really, really, really practical, if you want to get down to it, how do you apply that? Even that, rest in Christ. Okay, does that mean I go home and go to sleep tonight and think, man, Christ? Not exactly. (laughs) Not exactly, right? But whenever you are tempted, maybe not to rest in Christ, I think you should just meditate on what it means for Christ to already have represented you before God with his righteous life. Whenever you're going to serve in a ministry, we should all be serving in any way we can to build up the body of Christ. Whether it's at Engage or even in your local church or your local ministry that you serve in, maybe, maybe it's a good idea to say a quick prayer before you serve and just remind yourself that no matter what happens, Christ represents me before God. I am found righteous in him. And when we, when we sin, when we fall, and we come to God in repentance, and we say, God, please give me the power to resist this sin. Please help me to walk like Jesus. We should end that prayer by saying, and God, Father, thank you that you've provided Christ that even when I fall, you see me in him. Think on it, pray on it. Jesus is the image of God. But lastly, I want us to see our last point, that Jesus Christ, he's the word of God, he's the image of God, But also we see in Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. If we keep going in verse 3, it says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So earlier we dabbled a little bit in talking about what an Old Testament office is is and, and how it's fulfilled by Christ and all of them point to Christ. And so here again, in the book of Hebrews, in the opening chapter, we see that Christ not only fulfills the office of prophet of God perfectly, better than anyone ever could, but he also fulfills the office and role of the priest, the high priest of God. You see, in the Old Testament, the high priest would represent the people. He would go before God with the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. Only he could go and represent the people. And he would make a sacrifice for sin. And he would do that over and over and over. And, and by doing this, he was the mediator between God and the people. And God would hold back 
the punishment for Israel because of these sacrifices. And by Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews using this word, purification, that is the very word that would point its hearers, its Hebrew listeners, back to the priests, the high priests of God who would offer up sacrifices. And it's not a coincidence that that's happening. I can even prove it to you. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13, the writer of Hebrews says this, For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So Christ purifies, offers purification for our sin and as the high priest that represents us before God mediates a new and better covenant. But not only that, see, because when we see Jesus fulfill any office in the Old Testament, he, he always does it bigger and better than his predecessors. So when he comes as the prophet of God, he also comes as the very word of God. And in atoning for our sin, Jesus Christ is not only the high priest who offers up a sacrifice, but he's the high priest who offers up himself as the sacrifice before God. When Christ makes purification for our sins, he offers up himself. That's greater than any other high priest could do. Well, what else do we see? After this, Hebrew says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so earlier in, in verse uh, two, I said that we would come back to Jesus being the heir of all things. And so I want to look at it now because it pretty much repeats itself here with Jesus inheriting a name more excellent than the angels. And if you read this too quickly or don't pay attention, it might confuse you a little bit because why is the writer of Hebrews talking about Jesus Christ inheriting a name greater than the angels? And so clearly we know from everything else that the writer of Hebrews has said, we know that this isn't teaching that God created Jesus and that Jesus wasn't part of creation and that Jesus isn't God and that somehow after he resurrected, he became God. No, that's, that's not what this is saying. But rather, as Jesus completes his work on the cross and is resurrected, his work 
elevates his status as a man over and above the angels. And so what status is Jesus given after he completes his work? We see here that he's given an inheritance. He's given the status of the heir of all things. He's appointed the heir of all things in verse 2. And his name, he's inherited a status that is more excellent than the angels. The incarnated Christ at the completion of his work is given title, ruler of all, and owner of all. God the Father gives him this inheritance as his son whom he's well pleased with. And we read Hebrews 9 a little bit earlier about how Christ is this great high priest who offers himself up as the lamb. And if you keep reading in Hebrews 9, you actually see that as believers, all those who are in the covenant with Christ, we inherit everything with Christ. Jesus, the Lamb of God, mediates a better covenant than ever the world has seen. The Lamb who was slain rose from the dead and sits at God the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning forever until he comes again. You know, I think that elementary school and middle school is probably the most mischievous years for boys, at least. But usually this mischief only extends to when the teacher isn't looking, right? Rubber bands are flying, spitballs are flying. But when I was growing up, and maybe this is still true, teachers had some really good ways of determining what was going on behind their back. And basically, it went something like this. If you don't tell me who did it, I'm going to assume it was you. And you are going to get in all the trouble for it. And uh, this works like a charm, right? Because what fourth grader is really going to go down for his classmate? None. I know by experience. And really it works because selfish little fourth graders actually see something right. I mean, who wants to take punishment for what someone else did wrong? It's not natural to us to take punishment for something we didn't do. But you see, that's where Jesus is different again from us. Because as the perfect word of God and image of God and lamb of God, he let himself, he offered himself up willingly, was broken willingly for us in our place. And he takes the punishment that sinners deserve. 
And one of the things that this means is that really simply, you must put your trust in the person and work of Christ. Unless you are covered by the blood of this lamb who offers a better covenant, there isn't forgiveness of sin. You must put your faith in the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because someone will pay for your sin. Will it be you or will it be this lamb who offered himself up for you? But, but if you're a believer here tonight, this means that your sins have been perfectly and fully atoned for by the greatest sacrifice that could ever be offered. Whereas God was never fully satisfied with the blood of bulls and goats, he is satisfied in Christ's atoning work. So you don't have to fear God's punishment because Christ has taken it for you. But I, I, I would be... I think irresponsible if I, I didn't show you that not only has Christ taken the punishment for you, but he's also made you clean. See, that word purification, it, it doesn't just hearken us back to an Old Testament system, but it actually does speak to something that in your sin, you become unclean before God. But when Christ makes purification for your sin, he sprinkles his blood on you and makes you clean. Do you actually, do you think about that? When you're depressed about your sin, when you're racked with guilt over what you've done, do you think about the fact that Christ himself has cleansed you from your sin? He's made purification for you. And we actually fight our sin from this truth that we are made clean. Let us not go back to that sin that defiles us. We're sprinkled clean. Ultimately, when answering this question, who is Jesus? We see from Hebrews that Jesus is the God-man who offers salvation and right relationship with God. So if you don't take anything away else tonight, I want to say that one more time. When answering the question, who is Jesus? We see from Hebrews that Jesus is the God-man who offers salvation and right relationship with God. We see that Jesus is the true and better prophet, priest, and king 
We see that Jesus is the true and better representative of mankind. We see that Jesus is the word of God. He's the image of God. He's the lamb of God who was slain for us. He fulfills every Old Testament prophecy and every Old Testament office above and beyond what they were meant to be. But we can't stop there because when we ask who is Jesus, we answer that he's the word of God, the image of God and the lamb of God from the book of Hebrews. But we must ask the question that Jesus asks in his gospels. In the gospels, Jesus asks a question that determines your eternal fate. Who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for sending us your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for providing a sacrifice for sin that we could be forgiven and that we could be made clean by the blood that you would sprinkle on us. Father, I pray that tonight for anyone who has not put their faith and trust in Christ, who does not know you, Father, I pray that they would turn from their sin and trust in you. Father, I pray that as we see the image of God in Christ and we see the Lamb of God who was slain for us and we hear your words, we see Jesus as the Word of God, that we would bow and worship him as God. And we would rest in the finished work that he has done for us. That we wouldn't be tempted towards trying to earn our own salvation, but that we would rest in the work that Christ has done for us. And it's all these things we ask in his name. Amen.